Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Really, these two verses went with the previous section as far as the way it's written, but the, the message here is profound enough that I believe it needed to be pulled out separately. Uh, have you ever known anybody whose name didn't fit them? Uh, maybe you knew a, a really big guy named Slim or, or Tiny. I mean, that'd be like somebody calling me Skinny. It doesn't fit, right? Uh, maybe you knew a, 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 a woman named Sunshine or Joy, and they don't show, exhibit either of those things. Um, or maybe you looked into the meaning of your name. Uh, it, in particular, I, I could talk about my name, Michael. Uh, it's, he, it's of Hebrew origin. Uh, the E-L on the end stands for God. And Micah, a uh, prophet in the Old Testament, who is like? My name is who is like God. Now, if you put a period on that, then it's questionable, right? Um, Michael, who is like God. You're like, no, about that. But if you put a question mark on it, then it's uh, a little different. It's who is like God, and then you can answer, certainly not him. Uh, that's, but our names sometimes fit, and sometimes they don't. And oftentimes, uh, especially nicknames, they, they are uh, ironic. Looking at this baby that was born uh, to this virgin... He almost had that kind of name. As a matter of fact, just based on what was going on right then, the circumstances around his birth, what everybody knew of his mother and father and where he was born and where he came from, very certainly they would have questioned the meaning of his name. Why does this child have that name? Jesus apparently had the kind of name that would make you go, he doesn't fit the name. One uh, anonymous uh, patristic uh, pastor, preacher, patristic, early, early, uh, well, four or five hundred A.D., soon after Jesus was born, said this, said, The virgin held in her womb what the whole world could not contain. The virgin held in her womb what the whole world could not contain. And we realize that now. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We look at, at Jesus and, and we look at what was going on there. And, and if, we, if we take into account, if they had taken into account, and many people did, the circumstances surrounding the birth, when it happened, they knew something was special. The shepherds knew. Uh, the magi that we'll talk about next week, they knew. Mary and Joseph certainly knew. But that was about it. The scholars of the day knew if they had been paying attention but the rest of the people just thought, this name doesn't fit this kid. Well, we're going to see this morning, the name fit the kid. Uh, the name fit the kid wonderfully, and we're so thankful that it did. Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, read it with me. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. There are a couple of things we see in this passage of Scripture before we get to 
Jesus. We, we, we are continuing to see the, the birth narrative from the perspective of Joseph, or at least with Joseph as the uh, focus, uh, uh, the, the supporting character focus. If, if, if we were handing out Oscars, uh, Joseph would get the best supporting actor for this story. The, 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 the focus is Jesus, but the supporting actor is Joseph. For Luke, it would have been Mary. So we're continuing to, to walk through this with him. Uh, chapter 2, we'll continue to walk through this with him. He'll, he'll get uh, some more information later on about what he's supposed to do. But what we see here is, and we're not going to talk about the, the flight to Egypt and all that, uh, that we're going to stop before we get there. What we see with Joseph right here in this passage, I believe we see uh, three things about Joseph. We see first the obedience of Joseph. In verse 24, it tells us when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. Now, this is the second time that Joseph is going to do as the Lord uh, commands him. Uh, he's going to do it again uh, later on, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, this is the first time. He's going to do it again later on on the flight to Egypt when they leave Bethlehem. And then the third time he's going to do it when they're going back home from Egypt and he's going back to Bethlehem and God says, nope, go back to Nazareth. So three times in verses, in chapters one and two, Joseph models obedience to a direct command. Now, this really shouldn't surprise us. It doesn't, but it's just made clear to us. If we go back to, um, the, to, chapter, uh, to verse 19, so husband being, uh, her husband Joseph being a righteous man, we, we talked about that, how that meant law-abiding. He did what the, the Word of God told him to. The written word of God told him to. So no surprise here that when the time came that God spoke words to him, that Joseph was just as obedient as he always had been. But that is a picture of how Jesus is going to be raised. We talk about, talked about this morning in our Sunday school class. Uh, the, the passage was from Luke, so it was about Mary and how God called her uh, favored one, and then later on, the angel did, and then said, later on said, you have found favor with God. You have found grace with God. We discussed the fact that very likely that phrase was not meant to say, Mary, you have been obedient for your 12 or 13 years, therefore you get this reward of having my son. But as, he, as God would say to all of us, Mary, you're a sinner, just like everybody else, but... I'm going to do something in your life. I'm choosing you. I'm pulling you out to do something special, not based on your goodness, but based on my grace. But we can also look at Mary and understand that there was very likely, well, obviously, there was something special about her. There was something special about the fact that when the Lord, when the angel showed up and said, uh, Hail, uh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And tells her all of these things that are going to happen. She says, may it be done to me as, as it has been said. We see obedience. She was a special girl at 12 or 13 years old. Joseph, let's not take anything away from him, was a special guy at 16, 17, 18 years old, likely. When God said, Joseph, this is what I want you to do. 
this thing that goes against everything you've been taught, this thing that goes against everything your emotions are, are telling you, this thing that goes against what the crowd around you, your own family uh, would be telling you, her family would be telling you, what goes against everything that you think you ought to do based on everything you already know, I'm telling you to do the opposite. Joseph says, yes, Lord. And he does this three different times in this passage. Jesus grew up with a mom and a dad that modeled obedience to God. Uh, there's, a, there's a family sermon right there that I could preach, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to let that hang there for you, moms, dads, grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters. Model obedience like Joseph did. The second thing we see uh, about Joseph here, we don't see just his obedience, but we see his compassion. Now, certainly, uh, he could have been disobedient to God and not taken Mary as his wife. He does uh, take her, though. He is obedient to, uh, to the Lord. But in that obedience, we see his compassion. I don't believe we see just cold obedience to God. I don't think we see here him saying, all right, God, I know you're telling me to do it. I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it. I don't think we see that from Joseph. Um, there are a lot of ways he could have gone, been obedient, but not shown her compassion. Instead, he, he marries her as he says he would, as the Lord tells him to. And, and, and that provides more than just a name for Jesus. It does. But in this world, at this time, in this culture, it provided, I think, three things to her that she needed through this time. One, it provided protection. It said to the, to the folks, the family, the friends in the area that would uh, condemn her, that some who would have been very strict about the law and said, would have said stone her, it provided life for her. Very literally, it protected her life for Joseph to marry her. And I know, that, I, I know that Joseph knew that. Though scripture doesn't tell us, we know he knew the culture, he was lawful. We know he knew this protects my fiance and keeps her safe. It provides for her love. I, I don't know if you've ever uh, uh, been a part of, of a birth. Um, uh, a lot of you have. I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, your wife going through uh, postpartum depression or a friend of yours going through postpartum depression. Um, uh, we didn't experience that deeply, but I think every new mom has that to some degree. Imagine the, the possibility of postpartum depression when you just had the Son of God at a, as a 12 or 13-year-old when you've never been with a man, as she would say. Imagine the weight of the world that a 12 or 13-year-old girl would feel knowing Hold on, I've got to tell my family and, and my town, because everybody knew everybody in Nazareth. I've got to tell everybody, yeah, it's, it's God's kid. It's, it's not, I, mean, I didn't do anything, and it's not Joseph's, it's God's. Imagine that weight. Imagine having to do that on your own. What Joseph brought to that, I believe, 
in his marriage to her, in, in his acceptance of her, and we see that he's still around 12 years later when they uh, head off to the temple, uh, or, or they're, they're at the temple for the Passover, and Jesus is uh, in, the, in the temple talking to the scholars. He's still around. What I believe the second thing he brought was love, to help her through that. Uh, men, and now I could go off on a sermon about men and their responsibility to their wives, and I won't do that, but I will briefly say, men, we have a responsibility to love our wives. We can go to Joseph and see that he did that. He saw his responsibility as, uh, as loving her and helping her through this process, through what would have been considered a crisis in their lives at the time, certainly a crisis of belief, as we talked about in our uh, Experiencing God study, but to love her and carry her through that and be with her by her side through that. He was there possibly, we don't know, but he was possibly there at the time of her birth, actually playing the role of the midwife. If we, if we believe the, the nativity scenes that we create, if... if it's very possible that they were around some family uh, that, that helped out and, and, and Joseph didn't have that role, but he was there. He was loving her through it. And the third thing that he does by his compassion, his willingness to marry her, is he offers her security. Here's, here's the, the third issue of a, uh, a spouseless woman in this culture. They had no security. They couldn't just go out and get a job. They, they weren't educated. There were some that were business owners. Proverbs talks about the woman who, who weaves and sows and, and even uh, plants a garden and sells the produce. So there was opportunity, but that was uncommon, not common. And so having this husband at the age of 12 or 13 and being a new mom at age of 14 or something like that provided her with the security that she needed to raise her child, to, to uh, not die of starvation, to have a home to live in. Joseph, in his compassion, when he marries her, he is obedient, but he is compassionate to her. And then verse 25, we see about Joseph that he was reverent. We see his reverence to the Lord and to what the Lord was doing in his wife. Verse 25, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. She, he would not have sex with that woman until that special baby was born. Now, understand, we read scripture, there is no command not to. Luke doesn't say don't. Matthew doesn't say don't. Uh, there's, there's no command for him to refrain from that. So what's going through his head at this time? At this time, he's thinking, though it is my, quote, right, though there's nothing wrong with it, it's not sinful, it's not inherently wrong, there is something special going on here. And I'm not going to interrupt that. 
what it also does for Matthew's, uh, from Matthew's perspective, for the, the message that he is trying to get across to his, uh, his Jewish readers was that you, you can't even say that, oh, well, see, she said she was pregnant, then they got married, and that's when she really got pregnant because they consummated the marriage, and so it wasn't really a virgin birth. Matthew's making clear that, that, that they understood, that we understand There was no way any man was involved in this baby. It is clearly and totally and completely a work of God. There's no way that Joseph was involved. Now, this kind of leads us to some some questions. Uh, He he didn't then, but he did later. Uh, We know that Jesus had... Uh, half-brothers and sisters. They're uh, recounted in the Gospels. Uh, Jude was one of them. He, he mentions it uh, in, his, uh, in his letter. Uh, they were typical man and wife after Jesus was born. There was no perpetual virginity of, uh, of Mary, as some people would say. So he does something over and above what God had commanded him. Because Joseph was worshiping in his marriage. Worshiping with his marriage. There's a third sermon, isn't it? Uh, that, that we as couples worship with our marriage. Ephesians tells us that marriage is merely, and I use that word not, not to denigrated or to lessen marriage but to say what the purpose of marriage is marriage is merely to show an example to the world of how the of the relationship between Christ and his church the groom and the bride that's what marriage is for so in marriage there is reverence reverence for each other reverence to the contract reverence to the commitment And we see that in the life of Joseph, that he had reverence to his marriage. Married couples, we should have reverence and we should worship in our marriage. Our marriages should be examples of worship. And then verse 25, uh, the, the last part of it. And he, Joseph, named him Jesus. That might seem incidental, but it's not. Because at that moment, Joseph adopts Jesus. By Joseph doing the naming, not Mary doing the naming, but Joseph doing the naming, Joseph now adopts this baby boy. This baby, as I I talked about two previous Sundays, has the genetic lineage of Mary and through the genetic lineage of Mary, lineage back to David. But now he has a more royal lineage from David through Joseph to to, uh, uh, this adoption moment because now he is, Jesus is, genetically royal and adopted royal. He is doubly the son of David. He is more the son of David than any child ever. I know I've told you before, but I'll remind you again that especially in Roman, uh, the the Roman world, and it's basically what they lived in now, in the Roman world, adoption was more uh, uh, ironclad than genealogy. 
In, in the Roman world, you could disown your uh, biological child. No, uh, no inheritance, no benefits, no privileges of the family name. They are uh, excommunicated, they're kicked out, they're done with the family. But if you adopted a child, you could not ever disown that child. You couldn't undo the adoption. So now J Jesus' lineage as the son of David is ironclad. There is no argument anymore. No one could say, well, he wasn't. Yeah, he was. He was adopted. Well, he's not. Yeah, he is. He's Mary's. Jesus was adopted. Jesus was the son of David, doubly. But what is in that name? We kind of skipped over that back when the angel told Joseph what he would name uh, the son. Verse 21, he said, she will give birth to a son and you... Very clearly, you, Joseph, are to name him Jesus. You are to adopt him because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is what we know him as. That's the name we use. Old, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, so that's the name that comes across to us. If the, if the New Testament had been, had been written in Hebrew uh, and then translated to English, we would have called Jesus Joshua. That was his name. Uh, you go to the Old Testament, you say it in Hebrew, and it's Yeshua. And that Yeh is the, the uh, Yahweh part of his name, and the Shua is what happens or what he does. That name meant Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Well, that was the Jewish hope, right? One day, God is going to pull us out of exile. One day God is going to get us out from under the, the thumb of the Egyptians. One day the, the, the Lord is going to get us out of the, the, the grip of Rome. One day, one day Yahweh is going to save us politically. God is going to get us out. We are going to be our own nation. One day the son of David is going to sit on the throne forever eternally, as was promised to David through the words of Samuel from the mouth of God. So universal was this hope. So constant was this yearning that Jesus, or Joshua, was an extremely common name. Extremely. It's kind of like John in English. John's sorry. Y'all have a common name. If you were born between 1969 and 1980, Michaels are everywhere. How many Michaels do we have in here? I know of at least three, uh, uh, right? So uh, you're a little bit before 69, I know, but, you know, uh, it's okay. It still works. So, so I know what that's like. I, I grew up in, uh, in, when I was in elementary school, rather, there were three Michaels in my class of 20. I mean, if that's not confusing, uh, Michael Griffin, Michael Linton, and Michael Knoll. I, I still remember their last names. Haven't seen them since fifth grade, but I still remember their names. Um, an extremely common name. That was Jesus. If, if Mary had been walking down the streets of Nazareth, and she didn't know where Jesus was, six, seven, eight years old, running around town, Jesus! 20 kids had come running. No, Jesus bar Joseph! Eight kids come running. 
Jesus Bartros, I'm Mary, my kid. Seven kids come running. But finally, they realize, oh, that, I know which Mary that is. That's my mama. That's not your mama. Okay? That, that, that's how common this name was. We, we, we give, and, and here's kind of my point for saying this, we give such reverence to this name, and we should. But it's, it's part of that story of, of Jesus becoming one of us, the second person of the Trinity, the Son becoming one of us, that he didn't take a name that nobody had ever heard of. Now, we go to Revelation and we, we, we read places where it's the name that's above all names, and it is now because we understand not just the significance of the name, but the significance of the person that held that name. But the name itself as it was, he was just becoming one of us. He was just Joshua, or today he was just John Smith. Nothing fancy, nothing out of the ordinary. It was just a name that a lot of people had. But when they named their kids that, it showed that hope. Every time Jesus, or every time a child was named Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, it was that parent, that mom or dad, dad usually, speaking hope with the naming of that child. Not that that child would become the Messiah. Nobody really thought that. It was just one day Yahweh will save. And I'm going to worship through the naming of my child, Joshua. Yahweh, you will save us. And I envision, because especially then, names meant something. You didn't just name your child. Now, it was customary for them to carry their father's name. Think of Zechariah naming his son John. That was out of the ordinary that he would do that because they sons generally carried the dad's name. It was even a bit out of the ordinary that Jesus would be named Jesus and not not Joseph, or some variation of that. But they worshipped. You can almost hear the prayer as they hold this baby, and, and, and they, named, they had a naming ceremony uh, at eight days old when the child was circumcised, and holding this baby, his name will be Yahweh saves. Yes, Lord, let it be. Yahweh saves. Imagine them doing this with Jesus in the temple as we read about in Luke eight days they they take this baby and they name him Jesus like they're told to Yahweh saves yes Lord not let it be yes Lord it is Because you will name him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. When they named Jesus, Jesus, they weren't hoping. They were prophesying. It was coming. He was going to do it. This time, it was going to happen. See, that that name that they gave Jesus showed his mission, his mission to save. Every other child that had been named Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, every other child had been a, a message of hope. This 
was a message of mission in this name. Finally, after centuries, after thousands of babies born with this name, finally, this one was going to live up to the name. The name of salvation. The name of Yahweh saves. Because God was now with them. Emmanuel. God was with them. He had shown up in the form of this baby. And the celebration in the Joseph Mary household. Though they may not have even understood completely. Though it's very likely the the family, the extended family, didn't get it. We know that even as Jesus taught and did the miracles as a 30, 31, 32-year-old, that the rest of his family rejected him. Even they thought, oh, okay, this Messiah complex thing, a little off his nut here. We, we cool it a little bit. There, there was that response from his family. But at this point, at this time, the family said, Joseph Mary said, He's going to save. They knew it in their hearts. But the question then becomes, saved from what? See, it was no problem if we had stopped verse 21 at, after people. If we had put a period at people. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people. And everybody would have been, politics, kingdom, Woohoo! War! It's over. Y'all gonna get it now, Romans? We're getting our land back. Y'all out of here. And there would have been excitement about that. And they would have been, uh, the, the, well, you would have seen what we saw at the triumphal entry. Just a few days before Jesus would be crucified, the city of Jerusalem was in a frenzy because blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this king riding on a donkey. It was prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in that little stretch of, uh, of horseback riding. And they saw so much there that wasn't there. But they were hoping for this political leader and, and, and they just knew we are saved finally if they had been paying attention, though. The sentence finished. Because he will save his people from their sins. We are saved from sin through Jesus and nothing else. Jesus is not a political savior. Jesus wasn't a Republican. Jesus wasn't a Democrat. Jesus in this day wasn't an Essene. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't a Zealot. He wasn't any political group of that day. He's not any political group of this day. Jesus is not a political talking point now. He wasn't a political talking point then. He did not come to save countries. He came to save people. He did not come to save governments. He came to save people. He did not come to give us prosperity. 
He came to give us salvation from sin. He did not come to give us uh, salvation from illness. He did not come to give us eternal health or at least uh, temporal health in this world as we grow old. He came to give us salvation from sin and from death in eternity, but we're still going to break down and die in this world. He did not come to give us anything that we tend to layer onto this idea of salvation. I want this too and that and give me something else. All he came to give us was salvation from sin. But that, people, is all we need. We don't need anything else. Money's great. But let me take you to Honduras with us. When we go and we walk into homes literally built of mud where I don't know what their weekly, monthly, or yearly income is, but it's not much. But they've got Jesus, and you should see the joy. Would money help them? Sure, money helps all of us. But money's not going to save them. Let me take you back to the Holy Roman Empire when Jesus ostensibly was the center of politics when the church ruled everything and let me show you the corruption let me show you the Spanish Inquisition where if you didn't believe a certain way you were killed or the Protestant Inquisition when you have Protestants and I use my air quotes Henry like Henry VIII killing anybody who didn't agree with him and over and over and over let me show you the crusades where we go and kill people because they don't believe like us because we are a Christian government or a Christian nation Jesus did not come to save your politics Jesus did not come to make you wealthy explain to me health guaranteed at Belief in Jesus Christ as Savior, or better yet, let John the Baptist's head explain it to you. Health and wealth, baby. It's not there. Let me show you the Savior himself, beaten, scourged, slapped, hit, crucified, stabbed, his back basically skinned alive crucified on a cross hear him say from the cross your best life now hear him say father forgive them hear him say I've come to be a sacrifice hear him say you too if the teacher is treated this way how much more the students going to be treated this way how much more the slaves going to be treated this way if the master is treated this way? Hear him say, in this life you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. But hear him say what he came to do. But I have overcome the world. Hear him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes through the Father except by me. Hear God's word say, in him we have remission of sin. That's what Jesus came to save us from. Sin. If we add anything to that, we are messing up the gospel. We are preaching a false gospel. Now, 
Does the Bible say that we can experience blessings in life because of God's graciousness and good gifts? Does God heal? Yes. Are Christians in places wealthy? Yes. I'm not saying any of those things aren't going to happen. I'm saying if we count on our salvation or if we believe that's what Jesus came to do, we are wrong. And if we believe we receive this salvation from sin through anything else but forgiveness, we're wrong. You don't earn your salvation. You don't, you're not good enough. You can't be good enough. Let's just assume that today, at whatever age you are, you stopped sinning today. Never again to sin. Woohoo, you beat it. Congratulations. What about every day before today? You still did it. You, you, you might stop, but you still did. So there's still a punishment for that. You can't go back and fix that. The only way to experience salvation from sin is through forgiveness. Forgiveness of those sins by the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, we can believe in a, a baby born to a virgin. We can believe in a, a, a perfect human, a perfect man who was also divine. We can, we can have all of our beliefs straight. I do not like what James said in, in, in his letter. Even who believes? Demons. Uh-oh. Even de demons believe and tremble. Folks, belief isn't the issue. We can believe and not believe unto salvation. There is a huge, yawning, burning gap between the two. We believe that Jesus' gift on the cross saves us. We put our trust in that salvation and it saves us as a ransom. It is Jesus in our place. It is uh, penal substitutionary atonement. I've used that before. It is, it's, it's a courtroom uh, uh, vision. It's a, a courtroom image of us being declared not guilty. Not the, the record being wiped away, but someone else paying the price for that sin. Substitution. Judgment substituted. Jesus saying, you're not guilty because I'm taking your guilt. Atonement. Being made one with God. So in that courtroom where Jesus takes our guilt, he then says, God says, that is enough to make you one with me. Penal substitutionary atonement. We are paid for. We are bought with a price. And what does that mean? That means that we are not our own. I'm not mine to use as I see fit. I am God's for him to use as he sees fit. And that ransom was paid in sacrifice. Jesus laid himself down. Jesus put himself on the cross or at the very least, allowed himself to go to that cross. Jesus chose to lay down his life. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down as a ransom for many.
baby. Prophesied by his name, Yahweh saves. And 33-ish years later, that grown man that was that baby died on the cross for you and for me. That name that saves us is a name of forgiveness. How does he save? He forgives. It's, 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 a, it's a name that, that when we utter it, when we speak it, don't ever discount uh, confession to the Lord. But I think when we come in contrition and submission, that when we just utter that name, Jesus, he knows immediately. Now, we've, we've got some responsibility here to, to, to say some things, but he knows. It is a name of forgiveness. When we utter it, forgiveness is flowing. It's a name of comfort. He didn't come to save us from poverty. He didn't come to save us from illness. He didn't come to save us from bad governments. But what that name is, is a name of com- comfort in the midst of of our poverty. I don't have money, but I have Jesus. He came to give us comfort in the midst of our illness. I don't have good health, but I have Jesus. I talked to a lady this morning about the fact that her health, her poor health has shown her even more what she has in Jesus. She can rejoice in having the poor health in that diagnosis because of what it did for her spiritual walk. I don't have good health, but I have Jesus. I don't live in a time of uh, government prosperity. I don't live in a time of, of uh, Republican democracy, and I mean republic as in we are a republic, not a political party. I don't live in a republic, uh, dem- democratic republic. I live in a uh, 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 time of, of war. I live in a time of dictatorship. I live in a time of Christian persecution like the church in China that got raided just this week for believing in Jesus. But I don't care about that. I don't have to have that. He doesn't save me from that. I have Jesus. Therefore, I have the name of comfort. That in the midst of anything I go through, I utter that name. And there's power in that name. A name of peace. That The prince of peace, Isaiah told us who he would be. Peace I give you, he tells them. We are given peace over and over and over. And that, I believe, is a source of our comfort. That comfort flows to peace. If, if I find comfort in Jesus, but I don't have peace in my situation, then I've not found comfort in Jesus. Jesus brings peace. Be still. He said it to the waters. He can say it to our hearts. Peace. Be still. You come, for me to, come to me for comfort. You also get peace. And then it's a name of hope. Yahweh saves. And I look around and, and I look at my life and you look at your life and, and I go, okay, I got it here, right? Salvation, good. But I'm looking at my life, God, and I don't see salvation right now. And he says, I save. But God, I'm going through some stuff right now that you don't get. Snicker. You don't understand, God, but Jesus, God says, I 
save. But Lord, you don't know how bad this hurts. You don't know how I hate to see what my family member is going through. You don't know how I hate to see what my friend is going through. You don't understand the pain that I feel right now with this illness or this uh, issue in my life. And God says, I save. And, and implicit is in that is maybe not today, little man, oh man. Maybe not today, oh woman. Maybe you don't see salvation right now. But we have hope. We have, and, and, and we misuse this word hope. I hope to win the lottery if I bought a ticket. Didn't, I'm just an example. I hope that things get better. I hope that this works out. I hope that this happens. I hope that this goes on. Hope in the Bible is defined as confident expectation we have taken the word hope and we've put it in the place where we should have used the word wish i wish things would get better i wish i could win the lottery i wish this or that or the other and god says no through my son you have confident expectation that what that i save your sickness i save your poverty i save your, 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 your life in a third world, first world dictatorship, I save. But most importantly, little man, little woman, I save from sin. That is what I came to do. So we have hope of an eternity with him. Ultimate healing. Ultimate riches. Ultimate good government ultimate everything that is our hope this apparently illegitimate adopted child that was certainly born into difficult circumstances this baby that to everybody around there except for maybe mama and daddy and a couple others did not live up to that name didn't look like he's going to live up to that name That's an unlikely Savior. It's a Savior that doesn't look like a Savior on the outside. Certainly is not the Savior they expected, but it was the Savior we needed. And that's Matthew's point. This morning, Jesus is the Savior you need. I don't know what your circumstances are in life, and, and, and I won't say I don't care. I will say they really do not matter when it comes to your soul. The Savior you need this morning is the Savior for your sins. The Savior for your soul and eternity with Him. Will He fix your finances? Maybe, maybe not. Will He make you healthy? Maybe, maybe not. Will He do the other things in your life that you think you need? Maybe, maybe not. But what I do know is that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That unlikely Savior came to do that. That is what he did. And this morning, let me introduce you, if you haven't gotten it already, let me introduce you to this unavoidable Savior. You're here, you're hearing these words. 
you're watching on Facebook or later on you'll watch it on, uh, listen to a podcast or see it on TV. I don't know how you're doing it, but you're hearing these words. So it is unavoidable this morning for you to respond to the gospel message. This morning, if you are lost, uh, if, you aren't, uh, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are going to make a decision about Jesus this morning. You are going to either accept him or reject him. That is unavoidable today. He's an unavoidable Savior, and you need to give your life to him. You need to admit that you're a sinner. Repent of those sins. Turn from them. He, he came to save you, not from your illness or your poverty or anything else, but from your sins, which means you are a sinner, and you need to turn from those sins. So you've got to admit that. Yes, I am. I get it. I am, and I don't want to do those things anymore. I turn from them, and I turn to Jesus, and you believe that Jesus is your only hope for salvation, that Jesus is who he says he is, because belief is important. Certainly the demons believe and tremble, but they don't believe unto salvation. You must believe what Jesus said about himself, and then believe unto salvation, that he can save you. I know I'm a sinner, Lord. I repent of those sins. Jesus, I believe that your blood sets me free, and I put my faith and my trust in that salvation and you confirm your devotion to Christ. You choose to follow him, and you say, Lord, I want to be your child. I want to experience your name today. Yahweh saves. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this unlikely Savior, this, this baby that was born with a name that, well, so many people had named their child this and, and hoped that, one day, you would save them, and God, you did. You One day, you sent the baby that fit the name, and we thank you for that. Lord, thank you that you're still saving people. God, I pray this morning that if there's someone here who has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will respond by admitting their sins, repenting of those sins, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, believing him unto salvation, and then confirming that, choosing to follow you by being baptized by turning from the old life and giving theirs to you, to a new life. God, there, there's a believer here, maybe quite a few, that, that look at their circumstances that say, God, I thought you would save me from this. And, and maybe you will. Maybe it's just not time yet. Maybe you're going to do something miraculous down the road that we can't see. Maybe it's not your will that, that we be saved from this illness or this issue or this poverty or whatever it might be. But, Lord, we can find hope in your name, comfort, peace, hope, knowing that you've got us because we're yours if we've trusted Jesus as our Savior. And, and, and this world is fleeting. These, these, these trials are momentary. But we have eternity. That's your promise. So, Lord, I, I pray that somebody this morning who's struggling with that will will turn them over to you and say, your will be done. And Lord, if, if, if I never experience peace and comfort in my body or in my finances until I go home to be with you, that's fine. As long as I experience the peace and comfort and hope in my soul that I get to spend that eternity with you, Lord. We thank you for that promise. Lord, work on lives this morning as we come to you and continue to worship and ask for you to change our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you'll need to make a decision today. If the Savior is unavoidable, then unbeliever, come and talk to me if you'd like.
talk to Jordan. He'll be over here on my right. Maybe you are a believer and you need to pray this morning. You need to give some things to him and say, Lord, be peace, be comfort, be hope in this situation. This morning, everyone here can experience the joy of the Savior again or the first time. Let's, let's stand, let's worship him this morning, sing to him, and do business with him as he works on your heart.